Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please. Good morning. If I haven't had a chance to say that to you, good morning and welcome into our fellowship today. Now we come to an important time among many important times as we're gathered together, the time that we look into God's Word. As we've been creeping along verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we now come to a spot where, in my own personal opinion, for whatever that's worth, which is not much, um, I find to be one of the hardest things that Jesus ever said. And so hard that I'm going to read it to you today, and then we're going to um, kind of launch off and, and not even break it down point by point, verse by verse, until next week. But I have often found it amazing the way the Lord works when I study His Word. Hopefully you've come to realize that as a student of His Word yourself. Um, and one thing leads to another, and the, the, the route, the journey that I took spiritually to come to preach the word that I have today is, is uh, an interesting one. Um, I've been building up to this statement where Jesus talks about denying yourself and taking up the cross and losing your life for his sake and not saving your life but losing it rather and, and, and thinking about what does all of that mean. It's so, it's so deep and so powerful and so lofty it seems and intimidating even and... Then, as we go through the week this week, we came to the point where we started studying Malachi on Thursday night. And uh, there have been many times, many, many times, you can ask anyone who's been there for a Thursday night Bible study or two, as we've gone through these Old Testament prophets that I have said to the people that were there on Thursday night, you know, I really ought to preach this on Sunday morning. And so I tell them, don't be surprised if you show up some Sunday morning and you hear what you heard on Thursday night. I did not say that this past Thursday night. Rather, uh, three separate people came to me and, uh, and, and basically, and one of them in particular, in very strong terms, said to me, I really want to hear you preach that on Sunday morning. And it, it, I took that very seriously and uh, I, I, I don't ever just preach something because somebody says you should preach this, but, but um, I've been meaning from time to time, like I said, to bring like one of these minor prophet messages into a Sunday morning anyway. And uh, so anyway, as I'm continuing then, now we're only, we're only talking a couple days ago here now. It's Thursday night. Friday morning, I start to like think about Sunday morning again. And I've already had the passage in Matthew going through my head for weeks now and and so the easiest thing to do would be just to stay on course and, and go into the next passage of Matthew. But I still had this, the fact that these people had come to me on Thursday night and said, wow, that was really a nice challenge. It was really something. And, and, and uh, so then I, I started thinking about in Matthew chapter 16. And uh, let me say a prayer because I want to read it and then continue to explain why we're talking about what we're talking about today. I'll try not to beat that to death because maybe it's not as profound for you as it is for me. But let's just pray, okay? Can I say a prayer for us? Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that we can have this time in your word, which is powerful, gives life, sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word cuts right into us, Lord God. 
Your word does surgery on us, Lord God. And we rejoice that you, Lord God, search us out like that. Because left to our own devices, Lord God, we know that the ways that we choose for ourselves are just in line with our fleshly desires. And, and if just left to ourselves, we might go the route of some of the people that we read about in these passages and today. And we don't want to. You give us your word to warn us. And we pray, Lord God, you'd help us to heed what your word says and, and be doers of it. Help us to heed it to embrace it, to believe it. And then we pray that by the strength which your spirit supplies, that you would help us to be doers of it, Lord God. Help us to pay attention and learn here today and, and then just mold us and shape us. And like we just sang about, Lord, you know, our ears, our eyes, and even our mouths, we just dedicate it all, Lord God, to you. I pray, Lord God, for anyone who has come in here today who maybe hears Jesus' words today and, and may come to realize, you know, I don't really have Christ in my life. I know who he is. I've heard of him, but he's not really my Lord. He's not really my Savior. I haven't really put my faith in him. Lord, if anyone has come in here today who needs the gift of your grace, the gift of your salvation, I pray that today, Lord God, they would come to you in faith and receive that. We pray you would save who needs to be saved and edify who needs to be edified, and that you would teach us all from your great word which persists and goes on and on and on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I read this word, and it's in Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 16, 24. And it says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And perhaps the, perhaps the, 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 um, the occasion has something to do with the saying. It's not the first time that Jesus has said this, which I'll show you in a minute. But the occasion was that he had just rebuked Peter because Peter, after hearing that Jesus was going to die, said, took him aside and rebuked him and said, No, no, Lord. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. And so maybe on Christ's mind as he says these things a little bit is the fact that Peter, meaning well, but Peter just kind of reverted to what his own inclination was, even in talking to Jesus himself. And so maybe that's a little bit of what motivates the deny yourself part, you know. But nevertheless, even if that specific motivation is what prompts Christ's words here, it's a general enough statement, and as I said, it's one that he said more than once, that we should just take it in a general way and apply it to our own lives. He said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? 
For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I think verse 28 probably attaches thematically better to the beginning of chapter 17 than the end of chapter 16. But verse 27 definitely attaches to what is said before because it starts with the word for. Which, so, the, so the conversation is continuing. But as I read and thought about these words, and I have in the back of my mind these uh, folks, these dear brethren, saying to me how much the study of Malachi 1 on Thursday night affected them. Uh, as I'm thinking about these things, I'm literally sitting in my office yesterday, and I came to my office yesterday at, at like 8.30 in the morning and, and did not leave the building until 9.30 at night. So I'm, and most of it was sitting in there. And I wasn't just sitting there reading and studying. I was relaxing a little bit. A couple people, a few people were here during the day. Nice diversions to have a little conversation here and there. That was nice. But mostly I was just sitting in there, uh, you know, but, but sitting and thinking and, and, and reading and studying and, and, and wondering, Lord, should I just plow ahead into this or... What would you like me to say? What would you like me to do? And, and then I was reminded, again, recalling that Jesus had said this before, this whole idea of denying yourself. And I looked at the passage. We've already studied it, but flip back with me. We're not going to go verse by verse through the passage that I just read today. I'm, I'm taking you on my journey along with me so you can see how the Lord showed this to me, I think. Go to Matthew chapter 10, just back a few pages, and let's see the, the earlier occasion where Jesus said these words because he adds something in the previous occasion that's a little different, and not different, but additional, that really jostled my spirit, and hopefully will yours as well. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not, and here is the same thing he says in Matthew 16, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, having the latter part of that swimming around in my head for a couple of weeks and kind of expecting to go into the next section in Matthew 16, um, you know, uh, I was wondering where I should go. But what really stuck with me as I was thinking about it all was the beginning of verse 37, this statement, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let me first say to you, let me first read to you so you're clear what it does not say. Right? Sometimes one of the best ways to focus in on the emphasis of a passage is to just make sure you're aware of what he's not saying. Here's what Jesus did not say. He who loves father or mother but, but uh, he who loves father or mother and not me is not worthy of me, right? Or he who loves son or daughter can't really love me, right? 
he's not describing a, what we would call a mutually exclusive situation. He's not saying that if you're going to love me, that you should have no love for your parents or you should have no love for your children. And parents and children, I think, are symbolic of really, in a way, anything in life because when you think about what you love most in your life, just organically and naturally, apart from your relationship with God, if not first and second on your list, pretty near the top is going to be your parents or your children or both, right? You could put in there your spouse as well, but Jesus here goes to, you know, your parents and your children. But what he speaks of here is what? He speaks of, listen, he speaks of prioritization. He speaks of a love for God. He speaks of a love for Christ, which is himself. He's, and, you know, there's nothing heady or arrogant about that in Christ. Christ is simply speaking what his Father's will is. He's not walking around begging people to love him. He is walking around declaring what his Father expects from people who will come to him. Right? He says, he who loves his parents more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his own children more than me is not worthy of me. And I started to think to myself that it can be very easy for Christians who love Jesus and were saved by his grace and we're not promoting legalism here or, or trying to earn, our, earn Christ's favor or anything like that, but it can be very easy for Christians to allow themselves to become divided in their own hearts, or distracted in their own hearts, and find themselves wanting to love God and wanting to love Jesus because they have, and I said this in a different way a few weeks ago when I said one of the problems that we have is we place so much emphasis on this life that we actually place more importance on this life than the Bible does. Here's another instance, another example of that. What can happen is our love, even for the most intimate, close, important things to us in our lives, if we're not careful, can distract us from our love for God. And I think that's what Christ is talking about. He's talking about an undistracted love for God. You absolutely should love your parents. It's one of the Ten Commandments that you honor your parents. You absolutely should love your children, right? Obviously, he's not saying that those things are bad. Quite to the contrary, we're supposed to love everyone. We're even supposed to love our enemies, and we're commanded to honor our parents, and we absolutely ought to love our children, for they are a heritage from the Lord. So to not love our children, you're despising something that God gave you. So that's not what he's talking about. But there is a prioritization that must happen in the life of every true child of God that says, my worship, my faith, my love, my actions, my words, my thoughts, 
my time, my resource. Everything about me is first and foremost for the glory of God. Yes? Do you understand that? He speaks of prioritization. What Jesus warns with these words, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Not worthy of me. Not worthy of me. Well, in a way, that's easy to accept because none of us probably feel like we're worthy of him anyway, which I don't, right? But he's not, he's not trying to play theology there, right? And try to like, you know, put uh, uh, rhetorically an impossibility in front of you so he can make some other point. No, he's speaking plainly and naturally and just plainly and naturally warning if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be a subject in my kingdom, if you're going to be a son or daughter of my father, if you are going to be part of my body, if you're going to be one of my redeemed and truly walk that way, right? Then the way that you're called to walk is in a way where you have placed him as the first object of your love. He's not talking about how you get saved. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by deciding to love Jesus more than anybody else. You're saved by God's grace through faith. That's entirely his work. But what he's talking about is what? If you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me. In other words, he's talking about your walk, your walk, your walk as a Christian day by day with him. You've got to love him first and foremost. Now, so I'm sitting there just yesterday, and, 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 and having all of these kinds of thoughts swimming around in my head, and then the light bulb goes off, and I realize that's pretty much what was going on in Malachi chapter 1. They had forgotten, they had forgotten God. And more than just forgetting God, they had replaced God. It's more blatant in Malachi chapter 1. They had actually replaced God with idols, things made with their hands, and they worshipped other gods. We'll get into all that in a minute. But I want, to, I want to alert you to the fact that as Christians, having been saved by his grace and calling Jesus our Lord and Savior, we have to be careful as we walk day by day. Please, I'm not trying to heap some doubt on you or try to get you to think, well, maybe I'm not really saved. Look, if you have faith in Christ, you've been sealed with his spirit, you're saved. That's done, and nothing can change that. You, have, you should have confidence and assurance of faith that you are saved. I'm talking about your day-by-day walk as a Christian. We have to be careful, and please, let's all examine ourselves. We have to be careful that we don't slip into allowing other things other factors in our lives creep in and take the place that Christ himself should occupy and rightfully deserves as the first place, the prioritization of our love. I'm calling today to have you examine your hearts as Christians and ask yourselves, do you have 
an undivided love for God? Do you have an undistracted love for God? A distracted love for God is a love for God that's always going to be found wanting. I've been very serious lately about challenging us as a congregation to come on time, be prepared for and enthusiastically participate in the worship songs, try not to have too many distractions and things going on. And part of that is because I know that as a body of believers, that is an important part of our together as a family, corporately expressing our love and our thanks to God. And in a small way, that itself ought to be undistracted and undivided. It is a time that is set aside as holy. Holy. It is a holy time. I'm a musician and I have played in bars and restaurants in my past life. Not even that far past with the far as the restaurants go. Really, I used to take my horn into restaurants and when they would have like Oktoberfest nights, I happened to play the baritone horn. And so the baritone horn fits very nicely into an um-pa-pa kind of band, if you know what I mean. So if you can imagine me, I, I, I look the part, don't I? Big fat guy with a baritone horn walking around a restaurant going blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty good at it. Made some good money that way. But in any case, I'm accustomed to like playing in a place where I'm entertaining people and people are getting up and they're walking around and they're talking and, and they're everything else. I don't, I don't want to feel that way when I'm here. I don't want to feel like I'm back in the bar or back in the restaurant. I want to feel like I'm in the sanctuary. I'm in the congregation of the holy, chosen, elect, blood-bought, redeemed children of God who have an undivided, undistracted love for him and all they want to do is sing It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah, he reigns. You know, when your heart is divided and your heart is distracted, you hear these songs and they're familiar to you and you get bored by them because in your mind you've gone into entertainment mode, which is one of the gods of this age. We have no interest in entertaining anybody in our worship time. You ought to be able, this is a bit of an extreme statement to just make a point, but we ought to be able to just stand here and sing the little children's song, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so, etc., etc., etc. And if our hearts are undivided and undistracted, we can be moved by the truth and love God. Because the kind of worshiper Jesus said that the Father is seeking is the kind that do what? They worship him in spirit and in truth. It's so easy and so subtle to have a mind or heart that is distracted, a love that is distracted, a love that is divided. It is so easy to even outwardly play the part of a person who is a child of God when inwardly nothing is going on. This happened. 
multiple times in the history of God's people. And the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm not going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians is a book that was written to Gentiles mostly. Gentile Christians who used to work, worship completely pagan deities. They had no knowledge of the God of Israel. When they said God, they meant something different than when you and I say God growing up in America, right? I mean, the West, in the most of the Western culture, it's shifted somewhat in the last half century, but in most of the Western culture, whether a person is saved or not, when they say God, they mean the God that appears in the Bible. The God is the, the single God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you're necessarily saved, but, but, but that's usually what they mean. In Corinth, when people said God, they might mean an animal that's walking around outside. They might mean a statue that is posted on a street corner. They might mean a completely mythological figure in some fairy tale. And sitting in a congregation, there might be all sorts of different things going on. And yet, here came Paul writing to them and telling them, you need to read your Old Testaments. You need to read the Word of God. The Old Testament would have been about all they had at that point. You need to read, and you need to see how the children of Israel were the chosen and the elect of God, and they went astray, and God would intervene, and God would judge them and discipline them, change them, chasten them, because they were distracted and divided in their allegiance and in their love for God. And he said in 1 Corinthians, these things are written for our learning. We're supposed to look as new covenant believers. We are supposed to look at the historical writings concerning God and his relationship with Israel and learn about how God dealt with them and about how they dealt with God. And so all of this is going through my head and then I realize, yeah, that's exactly what was going on in Malachi chapter 1. And so we're going to have a little talk about Malachi chapter 1 and if we have time, we're going to go back even farther and we're going to talk a little bit about Jeremiah. And it's amazing because we have some people missing today and, uh, you know, I know the tear packs are away, and Amy usually plays the piano, and she does a really good job of organizing who's going to sing for the offering. And, um, and then I got a text from Angie yesterday that they were going to be away, and so I, was, I just wasn't really sure who's gonna, who, who actually is going to be singing this morning. So, so I threw a text Bella's way, and I said, you want to sing? And I was nervous about that because Bella was starting to sing, uh, teach Sunday school for the first time today. So it's like, maybe that's asking a little too much. First day of Sunday school, uh, you want to sing as well? But she's, she's game. I mean, she's, she's, you know, she's always like, you know, if she has a chance to use her voice to sing, she's going to do it. So I, that was really cool. That was impressive. So what are you going to sing? What are we going to sing? She asks me. I said, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I, what do you want to sing? So we came, we came together to the conclusion we should do this song, I Will Remember. And after, while we were practicing it this morning, it just dawned on me that that's exactly what was going on in the passage of Scripture in Malachi. They forgot that I will remember comes out of Psalm 77. It was an expression of the Jewish heart of worship. I will remember the works of my Lord. In Malachi chapter 1, God had to remind them of the works of the Lord because they forgot. So it was like a perfect song to sing, and it just confirmed to me that this is what we ought to do. So 
You're right now sitting looking at Matthew chapter 10, right? Good news, you don't have to go back that many pages to find Malachi chapter 1 because it's the last book of the Old Testament. So go back there, last book of the Old Testament. If you turn too many pages, you're going to go past it. It's Malachi chapter 1, and I want to read this to you, and I want to talk about, isn't it amazing how all this stuff hooks up? This is not just me arbitrarily doing this. Jesus speaks of a love that is undivided and undistracted. Listen, now I've got to give you a little context. Malachi, listen to this, Malachi is what we would call a post-exilic prophet. Post-exilic meaning that he spoke the word of God and wrote the word of God to the Jewish people after they had come back from their exile in Babylon. If I, get to go, if I have time and we get to go to Jeremiah today, Jeremiah was a pre-exilic prophet. Jeremiah wrote to Judah, to the Jewish people, before the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came in the 6th century uh, B.C., seventh, late 7th, early 6th century B.C., and came and in a series of sieges and attacks destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the Jewish people captive to Babylon, where they were captive for 70 years. While in that captivity, the Babylonians fell to the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire of Media and Persia. And the great king, who was the king over them early on, was Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. And Cyrus the Great issued a decree that allowed the Jewish people to go back to Judah. And when they were back in Judah, they rebuilt the temple. And the post-exilic prophets Haggai and Zechariah wrote to encourage them to keep them building the temple. Then a hundred years goes by. And guess what had happened in those hundred years? They forgot God, just like before the exile. It was as if the exile had taught them nothing. They were saved. Listen, they were already part of God's like chosen nation, but now God redeemed them. In history, it's called the second exodus. You know, just like the first exodus when God pulled them out of Egypt, when God called them to go back in a series of three trips back to the Holy Land to rebuild. It's called the second exodus. God had like saved them again out of their exile. Hundred years or less goes by after Zechariah and Haggai prophesied to encourage them, and they had forgotten God. They became divided, and so God had to remind them by raising up Malachi. You know, between the time that they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the uh, city under the ministry of, well, Zerubbabel was the first guy who helped rebuild, but with the prophets Zechariah and Haggai speaking to them, until John the Baptist shows up, there's 500 years. In the middle of that 500 years, the only prophet that God raised up to speak was Malachi, who spoke 400 years before John the Baptist came and prophesied of John the Baptist's coming in Malachi chapter 3. So this is like the lone voice from heaven in a 500-year stretch of Jewish history. It says this, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
And I should point out that the, the name Malachi means my messenger. And that's, that's an interesting play on a word that his name was Malachi, my messenger, because the most famous thing that he says is in chapter 3 that is, I'm going to send my messenger before your face, and he's going to prepare the way, and it's a prophecy of, of John the Baptist's coming. So in a couple of weeks, you'll see that on Thursday night. But here's what he says. Ready? Verse 2. I have loved you. Listen. Listen. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Let me just explain that. It's Malachi is writing in a way that it's a conversation between God and the children of Israel, right? I have loved you, says the Lord. And then the next words are what the children of Israel's response to that would be. Yet you say what? In what way you have loved us? In what way have you loved us? Can you imagine? Can you imagine after everything that happened in their history, asking the question, in what way have you loved us? And yet, sometimes we can be inclined to be like that before God. And we forget his love. Listen, we place more importance on this life than the Bible does. We sometimes find difficult circumstances in our life and we say, but I thought God loved us, and we forget I was lost, and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. I had nothing but my sins and my own futile, pitiful attempt at good works to try to justify myself. Now I have his grace through faith, and I've been saved. In what way has God loved us? God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I know you're going through hard things in your life, but don't let your love for God be divided or distracted by any of those things because Christ died for you 2,000 years ago before you were even born. God, fully knowing that you would be born and be a sinner, part of the worldwide rebellion against him. And yet, in your life, he opened up the word of his truth. He opened up your heart, granted to you repentance and faith that by his grace you might be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came at one moment in history 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, rose from the dead to save you. In what way have you loved us? I can't remember everything that happened yesterday. I can't remember everything that happened a year ago. I've been the pastor here. I'm in my 18th year doing this. I don't remember everything that's gone on. God caused his son to die 2,000 years ago and then like 30 years ago reached into my life in love and in power and in grace and opened my eyes to this truth. I'm a sinner and I have no right to even live 
Because the soul that sins, it shall die, the prophet said. And yet God opened my understanding and opened my heart when his gospel was preached to me. And I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I believed on him. When I heard the gospel, when I heard the word of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he came and he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he was bearing all of God's wrath and justice against my sin for me. He shed his precious blood and he died not for some arbitrary religious act or something. He died because God loves sinful people. That's his love. He died. They took his lifeless body off of the cross, buried it in a grave, and the third day he got up and walked out of it because death could not hold him. And the promise is for all who have faith in Christ, for me, for you, if you trust in Christ, if you come to Christ in faith, Come to Christ in faith. Come to Jesus in faith. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For all who have faith in Christ, death has no power over you. Jesus in one place said of people who trust in him, though he may die, yet he shall live. In what way does God love me? In what way have you loved us? In what way has he loved me? He defeated and destroyed the power of death for me. Can you find anyone who loves you like that? Here come Jesus' words. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his children more than me is not worthy of me. Nobody did that. You know, Jesus is the only person who ever lived who had no business dying. Because he's the only person who lived who never sinned. He never sinned. I mean, the wages of sin is death. Jesus earned no wage because he never sinned. You will trust in him with all of your heart. He promises you that though your body will die, who you are on the inside will never die. Come to Jesus in faith. Back into Malachi. Now, if you trust in Christ for your eternal salvation, and I hope that is true for you, I want you to know that you should walk through this life with a love for him that is supreme over the love for anyone or anything else. Your parents, your children, your spouse, your hobbies, your joys, the things you enjoy. Our Lord Jesus should be the thing, if I could loosely use the word thing, that we enjoy more than anything or anyone else in our lives. I have loved you, says the Lord, Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now here's God's response to that. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Wow. Think of all the ways that God could answer that question. I mean, one of the things that God could have simply said was, are you kidding me? Right? Another thing that God could have done was simply been silent and walked away. 
in what ways have you loved me? But he goes somewhere. He goes somewhere historical in Malachi's writing here. In what way have you loved me? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? And not that God's word needs any enhancement, but let me just insert there. Was not Esau Jacob's what? Yes, older brother. Yeah, so you know, you know you're, you're smart. You know where God's going with this, right? Says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In other words, what's he, what he's saying is, what way I have loved, what way have I loved you? You have no business being here. You have, you have no business being in the position that you're in, in your city and in your houses, with all of the oracles and the promises and the, and the association with the one true living God that you, unlike any other nation in the world, has. Because Esau was the firstborn of Isaac. You hear me pray all the time. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel is Jacob, right? Why, why is it Jacob? Well, you see the story in the book of Genesis about Esau despising his birthright. You know, God hated that. And there are other things about his character that as you read along, you can see. But the bottom line is this. A sovereign God chose the secondborn over the firstborn. They were twins, right? They were born at the same time, but Esau came out first, right? And Jacob grabbed his heel. And that's what the name Jacob literally means, one who grabs the heel. And what happened was, As they grew up, God preferred and chose the younger over the older. And that's why Israel has all of their promises. And God doesn't end it there. He goes on and and God stretches out this choice that he made of Jacob over Esau in history. God knows his history. You and I ought to know God's history. Verse 3, Esau I've hated And what? And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Not only did I choose you over him, but I destroyed him that he would not be any threat or danger to you whatsoever. In what way have I loved you? All the way from the beginning, Esau and Jacob, just as brothers, had a natural enmity between them because of the old switcheroo that happened there in the book of Genesis. That was passed down through the generations. But God always defended Israel against Esau. In what way have I loved you? You exist because I was protecting you. And watch this. Even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I'll throw down. So even in me destroying them, they say, okay, well, we'll just bear this for a while and then we'll rebuild. God says, no, no, no. Not only did I throw them down and destroy you, I'll continue to throw them down to protect you. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. In what way have I loved you? I've kept your enemy at bay. Your enemy, who by his birthright deserved what you have. I have done that, God says. Look at verse 5. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, 
the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. That's a, that's a very eloquent way of saying the modern colloquialism, God had our back. Right? In other words, God isn't just protecting us in our nation. God is out there outside of our nation, outside of us, protecting us. In what way have I loved you? I chose you. I sustained you. I defeated your enemies. And even outside your sight, I protected you. Does this kind of love deserve an undistracted, undivided love in return? Yes or no? Is this kind of love meritorious of us loving back even more than parents or children, even more than the, what we consider to be the most important things in our lives? The answer is yes. You should love your parents. You should love your children. You should love your spouses. You should love and cherish and be thankful for anything God provides in your life. But if you love anyone or anything more than God, you don't get this. Uh, maybe you understand the facts, but you don't get it. You don't understand. May, may, may I say to you that what God did for us in Christ far outpaces what he did for Israel in his defeat and holding down of Edom, not to mention all the other enemies that he defeated. What about in the days of Joshua? One nation after another in the land of Canaan. Drive them out, drive them out, drive them out, drive them out, drive them out. Even when they disobeyed, he continued to lead them and drive them out. What about leading them through the wilderness? Back before that, under Moses, before they even got to the Holy Land. And how the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke, how he led them through the night and through the day and protected them. How about when he protected them when they came upon the Moabites and the Moabite king Balak uh, raised up the prophet Balaam to curse them and God spoke through the donkey and, and, and turned the whole thing around and the, the, the Moabite prophet, instead of cursing them, blessed them completely out of their sight. God just had their backs, loved them again and again and again and again. Even after the depravity of the period of the judges, God raised up for them Samuel. And even after, uh, uh, even after uh, Samuel had anointed and made Saul their king, even after Saul was terrible, God chose a king after his own heart, David, and raised up David, and then Solomon. And in the days of Solomon, made him the greatest nation, the greatest nation in that region of the world. And then king after king forgets God. Occasionally there were some good ones, Josiah, Hezekiah, other ones. But most of the kings completely forgot God. And God still was gracious and sent them prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, to warn them, to warn them. Then they're carried away into exile. And God remembers them even there and brings them back and allows them to rebuild and bless. And a hundred years after that, here they are, right back where they were. You remember what you were before you were saved. You remember where you were at. And even if for some reason you don't, think about the fact that before you knew Christ, your eternal destiny was hell. Can I just be really plain about that? I mean, am I reading the Bible right? 
Am I passing it along to you, right? Before you knew, look, forget about everything else. Before you knew Christ, you were on your way to hell. If you need that explained to you, come and I'll show you Bible verses that show you that it's true. But then God reached into time, reached into your heart, reached into your mind, sent someone somehow to preach the words of the gospel to you. You believed the gospel and you passed from death to life. And that is God's love for you. How how can we ever forget that? And how can we ever love anyone or anything more? You ready to see where this goes now? Verse 6 in Malachi 1. Now we get into the heart of it. Watch this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. True? Yeah. If you don't honor your father, your father's going to bring some discipline. If you don't honor your master, and if you want to like put that into the context in a modern way of your like vocational or educational life, if you don't honor your boss or you don't honor the requirements of your job, you're going to be fired. If you don't honor your teachers or the rules at your school, you're going to fail. A son honors his father and a servant his master. God says, if then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Where is my honor? Where is my reverence? You know how to honor your fathers. You know how to honor your masters. I'm both of those things. I am your father and I am your master. Where is my honor? Why do you honor earthly fathers and earthly masters, but you don't honor me? And he gets into it. Look. Says the Lord of hosts to you priests. Notice, by the way, the subtle shift from talking to all the people to talking directly to the priests. Because the priests were the representatives of the people who ministered in the temple at the altar. Ready? The priests were the ones who oversaw their worship. And their worship was their corporate expression of their love. Can we relate to that? How about our worship? How about our corporate expression of his love? You want to see what, you want to see what God was talking about? You want to see why God challenged their love by pointing out to them I've loved you. I can give you example after example. Where's my honor? Where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Priests might hear that and say, what do you mean we despise? We don't despise your name, Lord. We do everything you told us. We stand there in the temple. The people bring their sacrifices. We sacrifice them on the altar. We do what we're... What do you mean the priest... What do you mean we despise your name? I go to church every Sunday. What do you mean I despise your name? There's all kinds of modern ways you can challenge yourself and fit yourself into this. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Here's what was going on. Ready? Verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say... 
in what way have we defiled you? Right? See the play on words? God's saying, you defiled me. They're like, in what way? Well, you offered defiled food on my altar. Their worship was different than ours. The worship they were called to was a, a, an, an outwardly ritualistic, religious system of sacrifice involving animals and an altar that was prescribed in their law. That's not how we worship. We don't worship that way because everything that those sacrifices symbolized was fulfilled in Christ. And so there's no need to offer sacrifices of rams and bulls and lambs and goats and altars and, and blood everywhere and all that because the Lamb of God died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. But it's not about the rams and the bulls and the altars. Jesus said that the worshipers that God's looking for are people who would worship in spirit and in truth, right? Look, at, look where they were. They offered defiled food on the altar. In what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Do you know what contemptible means? Do you know what it means to hold something in contempt? It means to scorn it. It means to despise it. It means to consider it inferior or secondary to what you think is important. That's contempt. I'm bigger than this. This is a nuisance to me. Do you think the priest stood there and said, come to the table of the Lord. We hate it. We scorn it. We think it's ridiculous. But come to the table of the Lord. Do you think they actually said that? Of course not. They were going through their duties. So in what way did they say that the Lord's table was contemptible? By their actions. When you offer... The blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? So here you get the whole picture here is what's going on. They were called in their system of sacrifices. They were called in their worship. Hello? They were called in their worship to bring their best. They were called to bring their first and their best in worship to God. In bringing their first and their best in worship to God, they were showing that their love in their hearts was first to God. If anyone loves his father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. If anyone loves his children more than me, he's not worthy of me. What was going on was this. This is after the exile and all the lessons that should have been learned. There's a passage of years and God has to raise up Malachi to tell them, you're bringing your sick animals. You're bringing your blind animals. You're bringing your lame animals. You're bringing me your garbage in worship. You're bringing me what you don't want and offering it on my altar when I've told you to offer the unblemished, the first, and the best. Don't you remember Esau? Don't you remember how I defended you and protected you? 
Don't you see? Don't you remember what I... Don't you see how I've loved you? When I said to Moses, will you people obey my law? You all stood there in the wilderness and said, yes, we will obey and do everything that it says. Of course, nobody can do that. That's part of the reason why we have the gospel. But listen, in their worship, again, 1 Corinthians, a bunch of pagan people who believed in Jesus, formerly pagan people, who believed in Jesus, are told, look at these stories and learn from their examples. The the, the people in that Corinthian church were only a little over a century removed from this. And they're bringing these animals that they don't even want. Hey, uh, grab that lamb over there. I don't think it's going to survive the night anyway. Grab it and take it to the altar to fulfill your vow and make your sacrifice. There's a few things that we need to see when it comes to worship. Number one, God, listen, God notices our worship. Did you know that? Did you know that no matter how big or small a congregation is, a worshiper cannot hide in it because God is omnipotent and God knows the hearts of every person. God knows the intents and the thoughts and the motives of the heart of everyone. And in worship, God notices, even though what you can see is an altar and a priest and an animal and everything happening the way that it was prescribed to happen, What you don't see is the heart that says, save that one, take him that one. God went that deep and knew that it was reflective of a heart that was distracted, a heart that was divided, a heart that had forgotten him truly. That's number one you need to notice about worship is that God notices our worship. That's why if sometimes when I'm saying, like in our worship times, come on, let's all focus, let's all sing, let's try to get here on time so you're here for everyone to start singing the songs together and we're not like milling around. And this, It's a holy and consecrated time because God is in it. And God is in the hearts. And we want to offer when we sing the fruit of our lips in a way that is holy, in a way that reflects a great love for him. Honor and reverence, as it says in verse 5. Honor and reverence. Honor and reverence to God. And then the next thing you need to notice, I had a list of a few more on Thursday night, but I'll just give you this one and we'll move on for time's sake. It's possible we need to be aware of the fact and examine ourselves because it's possible to outwardly observe the forms of worship when inwardly we're not in it at all. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we need to be careful. I'm not just talking about coming to church. Our whole lives are worship. And you have to be careful about what you say, what you listen to, what you look at, 
what you think about, what you give your heart to, what you're entertained by, what you, what you love. You have to be careful about relationships. Listen, without even directly intending to do so, things can pull our hearts away from love for God. And there's Jesus saying, if you love your parents and your children more than me, you're not worthy of me. Listen, let alone your, your movies and your games and your sports and your food and your social times and your parties. Forget it. If you love your, even the most intimate, wonderful, innately good things more than me, your parents and your children, you're not worthy of me. The Lord must be first in our hearts. The Lord must have the first fruits of our love. The Lord must get the best of our love and our worship, not not the, not the cowering, sickly lamb laying over in the corner who's about to die anyway. The first and the best in our love and in our worship. Look at the end of verse 8. He says, offer it to your governor. If I told you today that some important official was coming here to have church with us. And leave the politics and who you like and who you don't like out of it. I don't really care about that. But if I told you today that the president was coming here to worship with us, the governor was coming here to worship with us, the mayor was coming here to worship with us, some famous movie actor was coming here to worship, some famous preacher was coming, some, I told you today Chris Tomlin was going to lead us in worship today. And, and we didn't, like, bring our best. Even they would be like, well, what's going on here? Do these people care or not? This is what God is saying. Offer, take, your, take your offering and offer it to the governor. What's he going to say? Would he be pleased with you? I'm reading it. Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. So it's like the idea is rhetorically what he's getting at is if you're willing to show honor to people that you consider to be important, why in your worship are you content to not show honor and reverence to me? That's what's happening in Mount. That's what was happening in Judah. That's what was happening. The people were bringing their sickly blind lame animals to the altar and the priests were standing there accepting it. And God raised up a prophet and sent, it, sent him to them and said, why are you doing this? Haven't I loved you? Notice that? Notice that he did not challenge their understanding. Notice that he did not challenge their religious abilities or their religious observances. Notice that he challenged their love. Do you notice that? If you love your parents more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your children more than me, you're not worthy of me. Verse 9. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. That's a bit of divine sarcasm through the prophet. Because what's he say? While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Do you, do you think... Do you think that while you're bringing 
not the... Do you think that while you're worshiping with divided interests and a divided heart and you're loving all sorts of things more than God, that you're then going to go to God and say, God, bless me. And God's just going to say, okay. But that's, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Look what his response is. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God says, isn't there anyone there among you who will just shut the door so nobody will come and do this anymore? Not interested. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Then, then verse 11 is really, I mean, that, that pretty much says it all right there, right? That's not the worship that he's looking for. He's not looking for the divided heart. Brethren, sisters, friends, Christians, people who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the condition of your heart? What is the status of your heart? Don't allow anything. This is how Satan works. Zeke. You know, you know that the New Testament teaches that the devil is not, you know, the, the red figure with the, uh, the pitchfork and the horns. And, the, and he's not someone like we, we, we view the devil as responsible for sickness and drugs and, and people addicted to alcohol. Look how Satan is destroying people. It's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that he appears as an angel of what? What does light symbolize in biblical literature? I've said this before. It symbolizes goodness and knowledge. The devil appears to show good things. The devil appears to enlighten, right? Enlighten. He's an angel, a messenger of light. That's how he distracts people. That's how the heart is divided, by holding things out and saying, this is good, this is good. This is good. To Jesus himself, he held out all the kingdoms of the world and said what? If you'll reverence me, they're all yours. Right? Even Jesus himself was tempted by that. You think if Jesus is tempted by that, you and I aren't going to be tempted to embrace things in our hearts that will divide and distract our love for God. So many times in my own life and in the lives of other Christians who come and talk to me, people will say, I'm just dry. I just don't feel it. I just... Have you ever stopped to think that your heart is filled up with love for so much other stuff that your love for God has been squeezed out You love your father and mother more than me. You love your children more than me. You're not worthy of me. Guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it flow the issues of life. Right? What do you love? Who do you love? Yes, love your parents. Yes, love your children. Yes, love your spouse. But don't love anyone or anything in such a way that your love for Jesus is squeezed. 
compressed, divided, distracted from. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. A little looking ahead to where we are now, right? They, they didn't love him as they should, and so God has preached his word, his gospel throughout the world and all over the world and every nation. There are people who love him. A little looking ahead to the messianic kingdom, when the Lord comes back and people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship him when he's right here. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. My name's going to be great among the nations. In other words, what God is saying is, why do you allow your love to be distracted? Why do you allow yourself to love this, love that, and allow your love for me to be like filtered or squeezed or corrupted when the day is coming, when all over the world people are just going to love me and they're going to love my name, they're going to exalt my name, and that's it. That's the future. Verse 12, but you profane it. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its food, its fruit, its food is contemptible. Look at verse 13. You also say, oh, what a weariness. That's what they say. That's what they say about the Lord. I'm so tired of it all. They go through the motions. They go through the motions, you know. Here's the animal, here's the, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. You insert any religious group, any religious activity, including our own, into that. And you go through the motions, but really deep down in your heart, I am just so tired of this. The reason it was weariness. The reason, and listen, the sacrifices were always the same. Slay it again. Splash the blood here, 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 and here again. Pronounce this again. Wave this again. Burn this again. Again, 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 again. Sing that song again. Come to church again. Stand there again. Sit there again. Make that offering again. Listen to that song again. Listen to that preacher again. Read that passage in the Bible again. Again, again. Worship has always been about coming to God in the way that God has said, and God does not change. We grow weary of it, not because there's anything wrong with God. Because God's love for you is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? God's love has nothing lacking. But we allow ourselves to be distracted. And so, listen, listen. Worship becomes weariness to us. Worship becomes tedious to us. Worship becomes optional to us. Worship becomes something, it doesn't really matter if I'm paying attention or not. Worship becomes, we're singing that song again. Worship becomes this or that or this or that when it has nothing to do with the external accoutrements of it. It has to do with what's in here. And it has to do with what's in here. And if this and this are divided or distracted, If anyone loves father or mother more than me, if anyone loves their children more than me, they're not worthy of me. May I say to you today, look into your own heart. Ask God to show you. He will meet you. If you come to him humbly, he will meet you. He will hear you. He will speak to you. He will guide you. He will teach you. Pray. Pray, 
and have a love for God that is an undivided and undistracted love for God that is energized and given and driven by His Spirit in you. God doesn't want us to walk day by day through some droll experience. You're going to have trouble. The Lord promised you're going to have trouble in the world, but He told you you could be of good cheer because He's overcome the world. He didn't say he overcame this situation, that situation, that situation. He didn't overcome your this. He didn't overcome your that. He overcame the whole world. And so all the troubles of the world, while they're real and perhaps unavoidable, some of them, they're all temporary because he's conquered it. Love him. Let these thoughts cause you to love him above anyone or anything else. You're here today, you either need Christ or you're in Christ. If you need Christ, believe on him. He, as I already explained, he died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Make today the day that you put your faith in him and never look back. If you need guidance about that, come and talk to me when, you're done, when we're done. If you're here and you're in Christ but you find that your love is weakened and divided and distracted, examine, pray, take inventory of your life. Put your love for God back in that priority place where it belongs. And worship, worship, serve, love, honor Him, reverence Him. Our Father in heaven, We thank you, Lord, so much for the time that we have here today. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us, having heard your word, to understand it, to believe it, and to obey it. We only love you because you first loved us with a love that was proven by Jesus dying for us. And now we pray, Lord God, that that love would consume us even more than the love for our parents or children or anything else in our lives. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to love you with an undistracted, undivided love. In Jesus' name, amen.